morning, church. Good morning. And good morning, visitors who are with us today. It's so good to be with you. Um, as Charlie said earlier, uh, you might have seen Justin's name in the bulletin, and maybe you're looking up here and you're thinking, how did he get a few inches shorter and a few hairs balder? Um, but Justin is at home recovering, so do pray for him. He's looking forward to your chicken noodle soup. Uh, just uh, one of us will give you his address if you, if you need that. He'd love for us all to show up. So I am thankful uh, to be here with you today, and I'm prayerful that the Lord will be at work as we look at his word together. And if you were thrilled to be studying Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26, come back next week. Your wish will be granted. But today, as we said, we're skipping ahead for probably the first time ever, if I recall. And we're going to study what Christian just read for us, these first five verses of Galatians 6. So if you are Bibleless today, you'll find a New American Standard translation in front of you. And this passage is in uh, toward the back of the book. It's on page 150. This is our 15th week in the book of Galatians. And this is a letter written to an original audience made up of mostly Gentile Christians, meaning non-Jews. And in it, God's people are being called to remember God's gospel. Next week, we'll see what's covered in the second half of Galatians 5. But to tease that up a little bit and to give you an idea, that section that we're skipping today continues this teaching that Paul's laid out for us on how the church is called to freedom. As people who are free, he wants Christians or those who receive God's spirit to walk in the freedom that Christ has secured. And this lie has been spreading among the Galatians, telling them that grace received through faith in Christ is insufficient. They've been told that true disciples also need to add certain customs to their repertoire, like circumcision. And so Paul's countering these claims. He's passionately showing that we can't do anything to add to what Christ already accomplished. That would be a subtraction of the gospel. I should probably make a confession first. Uh, you've heard of workaholics. We've all known workaholics. Well, I am a recovering worksaholic. That means a uh, dumb joke. Uh, <laughs> just get that out of the way. But there's been times in my life where I've looked at my performance for security as though it could earn me something before God, uh, forgetting that Christ has done it all for me. So this study's been good for my soul, even to be reminded afresh. I hope it's been good for your soul as well. I think all of us should develop a healthy allergic reaction to anything that stinks of legalism. Jesus adhered to the law perfectly. So in the verses that we'll come back to next week, Paul shows that those relying on trying to keep the law to earn freedom are actually still in bondage to it. And yet those who receive God's spirit, he shows, can live according to God's intent for humankind. In Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. 
That's important for where we'll be today. Uh, Jesus has unburdened us from the law's demands. We couldn't fulfill them. And through him, by faith in him, our sins can be forgiven and his perfect righteousness applied to our account. And as we keep in step with his spirit, both as individuals and as a church, we can acquire the qualities of Christ himself. We can grow to be his new creation people who blossom beautifully. So with that groundwork laid, Paul is laying out several admonitions for us today, and he keeps going with more admonitions after the passage we'll look at today. So maybe you're asking, well, okay, we're free from the burdens of the law to earn right standing, so why do we still have burdens to bear? And not only do we have burdens to bear ourselves, but we're also called to share in burdens together. What's going on here? Well, these Gentile Christians who didn't grow up following God's law and the Torah could easily think that freedom from the law earned them a free pass. Maybe they, they're thinking that what their flesh desires can uh, be, be done by them now. Maybe um, Paul is trying to confront the other problem that seeps into churches. He wants to weed out this issue of the other tendency that we have to go in the opposite direction of legalism. You see, freedom to keep on sinning isn't true freedom at all. Following after our flesh, our sin nature, is another form of bondage. True freedom instead leads to total transformation through a life marked by continual repentance. Some have said while grace is opposed to earning, it's not opposed to effort. So our verses today are getting really practical after Paul's laid out this general teaching of what it means to bear fruit. He starts to hammer home specific exhortations for churches to walk in. He shows Christians that are walking by the Spirit together will grow in how they bear burdens. And just by way of immediate application, if you are here and you believe the Bible's trustworthy, you believe that it's God's authoritative wisdom as we do, and you should also recognize his design to rescue fallen humanity. Christ came to rescue people from sin through his substitutionary death on the cross and in his bodily resurrection. He paid the wages of our sin and his righteousness was placed on us when we turn from our sin and place our faith in that perfect work, that good news. And as God identifies with people who respond in faith to Christ, he starts joining them together in local churches. He joins them together in bodies of believers and maturity in his spirit leads us to submit to this beautiful design. God wants those he saves to be a part of his family, his body. It's for our good. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian or maybe you're not even sure what it means to be one, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we hope you'd come back. We hope you'd talk to us, get to know us, that we could help answer questions you have about the gospel message. Or maybe you're in another category saying, I'm already a new creation in Christ. He's made me alive, but I haven't yet formally committed to a local expression of God's church. Well, we hope this picture that Paul lays out is compelling to you because everything that we'll see today, the duties and the benefits are really only possible in the way God intended to those who both have the Spirit and those who've locked arms with others who are also keeping in step with that Spirit. 
So come find any member here. Again, if you have questions, we'd love to share more with you about these things. Uh, But I'd like us to pray before we dive in to these verses. Pray with me. Father, everywhere we look, we see a world that's plagued by death, decay, disorder. And yet we find you writing a better story, filled with life, filled with harmony. Through the life and death and resurrection of your son, you're making all things new. So by your spirit today, would you supply the hopeless and the helpless with needed grace? We are an imperfect community of Christians, yet we come to you knowing that you love us, knowing that you teach us to love one another, even when we're weak, even when we're needy, even when we're hurting. Grow us in goodness towards one another by your spirit, we pray. Amen. So once again, we're coming to a passage showing our responsibilities as new creation people. And those walking with the Holy Spirit bear fruit, even in how they bear burdens. Again, Paul's shown how one becomes justified or made acceptable towards God. And having laid out that picture of what justification means, he now continues to show sanctification, how we're sanctified together. And right away, we'll see several times in these verses plural pronouns like anyone and each one. This is showing the corporate dynamic of responsibilities that every church member shares. So maybe you've thought that uh, spiritual life, spiritual maturity looks like a monk meditating up in the wilderness somewhere. But true spirituality, as the Bible described it, is communal. We're sharing responsibilities, and one of those responsibilities is we restore fellow sinners. That's our first point. We restore fellow sinners. Read with me again verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too won't be tempted. It's so easy to overlook this first word, brothers, brethren. We should remember that Paul has reprimanded the church. He's firmly and passionately pleaded with them. He said, I'm astonished that you're so quick to go astray. But he doesn't want to ultimately condemn them. This family language is, it reminds us of the brotherly love that he has. Though he's given corrective words that have been painful for both parties, the goal all along hasn't been to hurt them, but to build them up. Biblical writers never toss around this family language flippantly. Long before the age of the self, the first century world believed family was everything. It would call to mind things like affection and commitment. In the first and last verses of chapter 6, we see this word, brethren. It bookends the admonitions. Paul calls the Galatian church brothers ten times in the letter, reminding them of this spiritual heritage that they share. In chapter 3, verse 26, he says, You're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he lays out this picture showing whether you're a Jew or a Greek, a male or a female, you're all joint heirs to God. You're all brothers. So what made our identity our identities unique before is overshadowed and transformed by the oneness that we share in Jesus. 
And here we see he's calling these supernatural families, these churches, to commit themselves to God's restorative work. And even Paul's manner in writing will instruct us on how we restore other fellow sinners. He says, even if, even if anyone or any person is caught in any trespass, and maybe you think this seems like an optimistic scenario, because if we look within our own hearts, we know that we don't just fall into sin every now and then. Now, chances are you probably came here this morning struggling with... I'll let you fill in the blank. Next week we'll see chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Paul's spelling out specific trespasses and wrongdoings. He might have sins in mind that we would deem serious or surprising, I think he probably has an eye towards the Judaizers for moving away from the gospel by adding to it. And it's easy to turn up our noses at others who are struggling in sin, but all of us have a proclivity to follow after the flesh. We all have a proclivity to listen to the serpent's lies. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. In John 8, 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Sins of every stripe, sins that we deem big or little, all of them offend a holy God. They threaten our holiness. They, they do that personally and corporately. And if sin grows, it gives birth to death. So it has to be dealt with. And those who commit sin, who haven't yet trusted in Christ, again, stand under the wrath of an infinitely holy God. They are held responsible for their sins rather than enjoying life forever with their creator. Sin leads to a place that people spend for eternity called hell. And that's why it's so good for those who've been freed from sin's penalty to remind one another not to get ensnared in it any longer. This language of being caught in a trespass isn't like standing over a friend's shoulders to say, aha, caught ya. It's referring to a person caught in sin, a person stuck in it, a person overtaken by it. If you're a parent or maybe an older sibling and a young child in the household sneaks off to the garage just to see how the chainsaw works, the most loving thing you could do would be to pull them away from that instrument to point them to a more profitable activity. Everyone who shares in Christ's identity, everyone who wears the family name, we ought to be vigilant. We ought to look out for one another's welfare. We're called to protect, not neglect one another. And this includes protecting one another from sin's jaws that come ready to clamp down on us. This word for restore actually means to put in order or bring back. It was often used medically, like to realign or put back into place a dislocated bone. And a good physician will care about the body's livelihood. They'll want to see every function operating as intended. They'll want to see the body restored. And those who are spiritual do this work. Those who are spiritual. Is this referring to a class of super-Christians? Is this referring to spiritual elites or experts? Actually, a little secret, there are none. Paul's commanding this work to be done just by ordinary, everyday Christians like you and like me. Those who a few verses early 
earlier, he says, have received the Spirit and are walking in step with the Spirit. I think it's so interesting if you explore 1 Corinthians 5 because Paul lays out this specific scenario in that church. This man is caught in sin, and this isn't just a little sin. This is a very serious matter. He's engaged in sexual relations with his father's wife. And Paul's instinct is so shocking because he doesn't say this is a problem for one guy to sort out. He makes it the whole church's collective issue. He says, you're all responsible to remove the unrepentant sinner from your midst. And long before a sin reaches that degree or multiplies to that degree, churches should be filled with men and with women who are faithful to build one another up, faithful to call one another up. Even Peter needed the correction from a fellow apostle, Paul. So church, do you hold to the covenant commitment you made when you joined? Are you repenting of sin? Are you submitting to others in accountability and discipline? Do you embrace this role that you have as a minister of reconciliation? We should remember that discipline and grace are not enemies. They are good friends. Hebrews 12.8 says, if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And when Jesus lays out the process for corrective discipline in Matthew 18, the goal isn't for the one pursuing to dominate the one who's ensnared. It's to gain the brother or sister. It's to lift them out from a pit of quicksand. So great, you say. I guess that means I have to get out my gospel grenade launcher every time I I get together with brothers and sisters. But verse one doesn't just say what to do. It also teaches us how to go about it. The key phrase is restore in a spirit of gentleness. Other translations tell us meekness, and meekness is not weakness. It's wielding strength for the good of another. It's the opposite of the biting and devouring we'll learn at the end of chapter five. And Paul hasn't lorded over these Christians with a list of commands as the false teachers do in an oppressive way. He's he's coming along tenderly as a brother, and we too can come to our brothers and sisters gently. There's a way to confront others that's not like the Pharisees who are skilled at taking a spiritual principle and lording it over others as superiors. We come with the right motive, and that informs the manner in which we come. Ecclesiastes 10.4 says, Calmness lays great offenses to rest. And Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The end of verse 1 reminds us that as we do this, we should do this each one looking within so that we too won't be tempted. This means that we come as fellow sinners, fellow strugglers. We recognize the towering tree in our own eye before we go to help dislodge the speck from another. One pastor says to bring out the best in one another, we must be willing to expose our worst. And I wonder where you're prone to drift today. Maybe like the Galatians, it's back to depending on the law for your sense of security. Or maybe it's what Paul would call getting tangled up in the elemental principles of the world. Both of these are unruly slave masters, and all sin leaves us in shackles. So however it is that you're struggling, don't stay hiding. Invite others in. 
your most personal sin is still a corporate issue. And I'm convinced this hits us all in one of two ways. So if you're sitting back comfortably thinking, uh, thank God I'm the gentle type, don't miss the broader application. You are to go to your brother and sister. If you're a natural conflict avoider, you still have a duty to correct. In some cases, you even are called to rebuke a friend in sin. Or maybe you're the type who's ready to spare nothing in your sharp rebuke. Walk in gentleness if that's you. Learn to cultivate it. I'm always shocked when someone makes their life passage for dealing with others. Uh, When Jesus drives out the money changers from the temple, I think there's a place for holy anger, but I also think Christ's whole earthly ministry was marked not just by toughness, but plenty of tenderness. And if Paul thought gentleness was for someone with a different personality than you, he wouldn't include it in the list of characteristics that mark those uh, who are walking in step with the Spirit, everyone who has the Holy Spirit. In a world of outrage, giving a hard truth gently will help adorn the beauty of our message. If you know the story of 2 Samuel 12, you'll know that Nathan had the wherewithal to approach the great King David who was caught in the not-so-great sin of sleeping with Bathsheba. And then Nathan showed himself to be a true friend. For all he knew, this guy that just ordered Uriah's death would kill him on the spot. But still, he gently pursued, and with God's help, David listened, David repented. Such an example to us of both a friend faithful to restore and another friend humble to heed correction. It's possible, church, for us to speak a good word in a bad way. So like Christ, like Paul, like Nathan, let's not just speak the truth, but let's do it in love. John Calvin said, until our weaknesses are regularly displayed to us, we overestimate our own virtue. So let's seek friends and be friends that are committed to fighting sin, committed to pursuing restoration. Every member in a church is a biblical Counselor, maybe not a really good one, maybe not specialized, maybe not certified. But by God's grace, we're all equipped with his word and we believe it's sufficient. So let's expose our hearts under it and let ourselves be healed by it as by God's grace, we continue helping one another grow. That leads into our second point. Our first point was we restore fellow sinners. And now for our second, we help the heavy laden. We help the heavy laden. Verse two shows us that we don't just minister in word, but also in deed. It says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Maybe you thought ministry in the church is all about teaching and confronting as we just saw. But Paul's next admonition shows we don't just help one another fight sin. We also help the heavy laden bear everyday burdens. This word for burden describes a heavy load or a matter that weighs people down, something that God never intended for us to carry without help. And as we'll see next week, the first characteristic of life in the Spirit is love. Maybe you think love is like a nice, warm emotion, but it's more like an attitude that's committed to action. The same love that leads us to lock arms and fighting sin together also helps us also compels us to help the hurting. 
God intends us to carry challenges together in a fallen world to be that community of care that he's designed. We're called to hold one another up. You and I know that life is hard. You probably didn't need me to tell you that. Jesus already told us that over 2,000 years ago. He didn't tell us in this world a few unlucky people will face trials. He said in this world you will face trials of all kinds. It's emphatically guaranteed. 2 Timothy 3.1 says similarly, realize this, in the last days difficult times will come. We talked about sins that tempt us and sometimes circumstances trample us. We see dreams die, marriages struggle, children departing from the truth. Conflicts arise, ethnic hatred happens, careers dissipate, financial troubles come. We're greeted by sickness and death takes those we love from us. Some friends turn away, others move away. Maybe fatigue sets in for you, maybe discouragement or even depression. Maybe a past tense burden is wearing you down, or maybe you're expecting another obstacle just down the road at another corner. Though your ways and my ways of suffering might be unique to us, suffering itself is universal. So if you're here and you're weighed down by a past, present, or future burden, we can't promise that there's someone in here who understands the gravity of that situation. And yet we do know a God who's taken first initiative to relieve the worst of these burdens. And he's done this for his people throughout history. If you study Exodus, you'll learn of Pharaoh ordering the Egyptian taskmasters to weigh down the Israelites with more and more burdens. And then God does, doesn't look on them absently. He, he sees their cries and he listens. And since he's loving, he sends deliverance through a chosen leader, Moses. Centuries later, David will write in Psalm 68, 19, blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. And in Psalm 55, 22, he writes to cast our burden on the Lord, promising he'll sustain us and never let the righteous be shaken. One benefit, again, that comes of being united with the church is growing together to understand the role God plays in his sovereign wisdom to permit burdens to come our way. But he not only allows us to undergo those burdens, he also shows us what we can do with them. Maybe you often pray, God, take this burden from me, and he welcomes you to do that. But the ones who is sovereign over that burden also wants to teach you things through it. Burdens teach us things like patience, endurance, and how to freely come to cast our cares on the one who cares. And struggling will help us gain empathy for fellow strugglers. It's through burdens that we face together that our shoulders as a church are broadened. We can become a family as we hold up burdens together and, and, and loving and ministering. When 2 Corinthians 1.4 says the Father of mercies comforts us, we want the verse to end with the, comforting, the, the comforted person starts to skip through life now problem-free. But the verse says he comforts so that we might comfort those also in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. I think it helps to remember that every week you come in here, including this one, there's someone a few feet away from you who's just in the throes of a difficulty. I think a good prayer for you might be, Lord, make my first in instinct not just to come in today to receive, 
but make me a burden sharer. Make me a burden reliever. And those who call on God in hardship will help others learn to do the same. The end of Galatians 6, verse 2, may surprise us. It says, by bearing burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. Fulfill means complete. But how do we complete something Christ accomplished in full? Has Paul lost his mind here? Well, we know Christ condemned teachers of the law for adding heavy burdens to people's shoulders, burdens they could never bear. And I think we have to remember here what we saw already in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use freedom as an opportunity for your flesh, but through love serve one another. Then it says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word, one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In a letter written to demonstrate the law's limitations, Paul again refers to the new law we're free to walk in now. It's this law of love that Jesus gave us, summarizing all of the commandments to love God and love neighbor. J.I. Packer says, though we're not under the law as a system of salvation, we're divinely directed to keep it as the role for our life. I think Paul, again, has an eye on the Judaizers here, saying, if you really care about fulfilling the law, don't neglect your brothers and sisters. Don't just pile up burdens on them like circumcision. Why not help unburden them from the perils of life? Okay, you say that sounds really good, but helping others is a little overwhelming. It's inconvenient. It's costly bearing burdens. Who of us has time to comfort the sick, counsel the hurting, or correct the wayward as we just saw? And when we love others well, it even opens us up to being hurt by them. And I think that's where looking back at what Christ did realigns our hearts with us, with ours. It, it changes everything about us. So no matter how burdensome life gets now, we can look to a sinless Savior who walked it before us. If you ever doubted that God cares, just remember the hill called Calvary that Christ willingly walked to. How along the way he served, stooped, and suffered, even when wrongly confronted, even when wrongly accused. The cross was society's supreme instrument of torture. The one hanging on it would uh, be seen by others, and the whole world had condemned them. And while a man named Simon of Cyrene helped Christ carry this burden a little way, Jesus alone had to endure its agony. He allowed his shoulders to be weighed down by an unfathomably heavy load. He didn't do this for sins that he committed. He did it for yours and mine. Isaiah looked to this day saying, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Christ took on the garbage pile of your sin, stepping into your life, dying your death, the Father turned away and disrupted the eternally loving triune bond. Then in great power, the Father raised Christ on the third day, proving dominion over sin and over Satan. And now undeserving sinners who turn from sin and death and turn to Christ in faith are made free. Now his life can be your life. Those he redeems are his body. We receive his spirit. We receive the helper and comforter who faces us, uh, helps us face hardships all through life. And if you're a child of God, it doesn't drain him when you keep coming back to him to unburden yourself. 
He can pour out grace continually with endless resources, even grace that comes from other people. Maybe you've heard a hundred times before what Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, but it's too good to not hear again. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I'm, don't miss the key word again, gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, wait a second, didn't chapter five begin saying that Christ set us free so we're no longer subject to a yoke of slavery? With the yoke of slavery taken, is Jesus just being cruel, giving us another yoke to carry? Well, Dane Ortland says this yoke he gives is like a non-yoke. In light of what he faced, the duties that he gives to love God and love neighbor are manageable. These things are light. The biggest burden, your sin and shame and the payment it required has been lifted off your back if you know Christ. Now you're free to love God. Now you're free to love and serve one another. This fulfilled language we see in verse two is a future indicative wording, meaning it's looking to a final day of completion, to a day the church is often called to look. On that day, our joy will, will be forevermore. So I think we can look ahead to that now in this age of outrage, in this age of us against them. Let us learn to follow the example of the one who deals gently with us, the one who's full of grace and full of truth. Doing so is countercultural, especially when recognition doesn't come, especially in light of opposition. In the Greco-Roman world, competition was everywhere. Exploiting people for personal gain was the norm. And then the early church entered the scene with a supernatural message adorned by their supernatural example. They were following a better king, one who didn't leverage his power against the weak. And as more and more people began to respond to his sacrifice, they were gathered in churches, and now they could begin making sacrifices together. Acts 4 even maps out how this looked when they were sharing all things in common, especially, as we'll see in a couple weeks, those in God's household. I'm so thankful for seeing all the time ways that our members are serving one another continually, for friendships that are made that have our sorrows and double our joys. Let's keep pressing on to, to grow in this manner together. If you've been unburdened by sin's dominion, you can willingly acquire others' burdens. In doing so, we'll even align your heart to our Savior's. After that beautiful picture, verses three through five leave us with a warning about the one who's least likely to live this way. We saw that we restore fellow sinners and help the heavy laden. Now for our third and final point, we examine ourselves humbly and honestly. We examine ourselves humbly and honestly. The end of first one already had a hint of this warning that we should look inward since sin is always knocking. And Paul calls us again to look within, saying humble and honest self-examination is necessary. Let's read, in, beginning in verse three. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Here, Paul's practical, pastoral 
counsel shifts from the corporate to the personal. We saw how Christians help one another fight sin and how they help one another care for needs. And those who love others by helping fight sin and bearing burdens also live with this honest appraisal of themselves. The phrase, if anyone thinks there's something when there's nothing, isn't talking about a person lacking worth or lacking dignity. From beginning to end, Scripture will tell us God has stamped all people as his image bearers with special worth and dignity. Wait a second, you think, is this call to examine our life and then have reason for boasting, giving us a permission slip to be prideful? Looking within, remember, to boast in self is trusting a full gospel, false gospel. It's looking at the wrong life. It's looking at the wrong person. In chapter 5, verses 26, Paul actually warns against this type of boastfulness, calling it vain glory. He lists that quality of sinful self-exaltation with other things that tear churches apart, like challenging and envying one another. Paul's saying anyone who thinks there's someone like the high and mighty who rely on human performance and demand others' respect for it, those people are forgetting the source of their true identity. And getting puffed up by works, they're deceiving themselves. We've been reminded throughout that works don't gain a salvation, that the only thing worth bragging about is God's grace in us. So rather than calling Christians to look inward with pride, Paul will call them to examine self not in light of other strengths and weaknesses, but to undergo humble, honest self-examination in isolation before the Lord. The wording for taking pride in self is also in the future tense, referring to the age to come. So verse five again looks forward to that day when all's said and done and we stand before the judgment seat, bearing the load of our actions before God as we give him a final account. On that day, the comparison game you've played, judging your actions against others, relying on self-effort, it won't work any longer. God's final assessment judges us solely by the standard he set, the standard of Christ himself. That's a work that only Christ could fulfill And it's made evident by our new nature in him. This is the only place that Paul uses the word load. It's similar to the language we saw in in verse 2. But the words are capturing different things. Unlike the heavy burdens or weights that we bear together, load refers to a light pack carried by a single person. But I don't think this is just talking about lighter burdens that we walk through. I believe it means uh, that now you're responsible to bear the load of the Spirit's work in you. It's a call to love God and love neighbor. John 3, 27 says, a man can receive nothing unless it's given him from heaven. Michael Reeves also says, a man too strong in himself will rarely proclaim a suffering savior. So rather than taking credit for the things God's offered you in his grace, remember that even the best traits about you weren't born from your nature. They owe to the Spirit's renewing work in you. And if you've learned to flee certain sins that once ensnared you, be grateful for that. But remember, even that striving owes to grace. So both... Hello. All right. (laughs) Whew, man. (laughs) Need a minute? All right. All right. Where were we? <laughs> so if you've, uh, if you've learned that 
certain sins that once ensnared you uh, had, had captured you, but now you're free from them, then you can be grateful to God, church. But Romans 15, verses 1 and 2 will say that the strongest of us have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak. So if you find yourself growing, grow in leveraging that strength to help those who are weaker than you. And this connects to everything we've seen because people obsessed with self are the last to know the joy of serving others. They'll care too much of how others perceive them to do the hard work of keeping them from sin. And if you love power, praise, prestige too much, you'll never look around to see a need or to meet a need. The great irony is that when we think too highly or too often of self, it's not fulfilling. It drains us, it isolates us. So if you spend life climbing up a ladder so you can look down on others, you'll never know the joy that comes from going low. So let's take Christ at his word when he says, the greatest of us looks more like a servant. There's a story God's writing and it's bigger than you, it's bigger than me, because God is bigger. And at the center of that story, there's a Messiah who's pleased to see us bearing fruit as we examine ourselves honestly to see how the Spirit is leading us to, to bear burdens. You don't just need others, but others need you. And this is the sanctification project we're called to, God's big, messy church who's been knitted together throughout history. Those who've been given much grace can now keep recycling it on to others. The church is a little like a hospital and a little like an army. It's an army equipped to fight a real enemy, and it's a hospital offering the spiritual medicine that our hearts need. And we're transformed as we look to a Savior who took sins on himself, as we call on a Father who's ready to listen, ready to respond. And if we've been re redeemed, we can trust his Spirit is maturing us to help us love one another, to help us turn from sin and help one another keep navigating the burdens of this life. Jesus spoke from his humanity when he said, I seek not my own glory. So if he was willing to give it up on the cross, how could we not do so too? As we close, I just want to take a, a quick look at what the Spirit did in Paul the Apostle's life when, when Jesus, the resurrected Christ, met him on a dusty Damascus road. If you know the story, scales fell from his eyes as God turned this persecutor of the church to one who built it up, glorifying God, seeking the good of others. But as Paul carried the burdens of preaching to deliver captives, the Spirit saw fit, just as Christ had promised him, for him to undergo trials of many kinds. Chapter 2 showed that because of God's grace, he did get the help of ministry partners like Titus and Barnabas. But as burdens piled on Paul's back, many would desert him, many would turn away. Life would get heavier. And yet Paul remained steadfast and humble, glad to give himself up. In the first verse of Galatians, he makes clear his apostleship isn't a ministry given from man or the agency of man, but owing to Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then later he'll gladly lay credentials aside again, writing, far be it from me to boast in anything apart from the cross of Christ. We see Paul early in his life signing letters, Paul the Apostle, and then later he signs Paul the least of the apostles. And then even later he ups the ante again saying, I'm not only least of all the apostles, I'm least of all the saints. And at the end of Paul's life he says, I'm the foremost of all sinners. 
This isn't false humility. He says this statement's trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. God's glory overwhelmed Paul. It put him in his place. It changed him forever. Has it done that for you? If so, friends, you're called to live differently now. You're free from a life of performance. You're free from measuring yourself by worldly standards. You don't have to spend your life in vain glory any longer. In love, you can now be free to serve. So look to the Christ who's gone before us. Look to the perfect one who identifies with the lowly. Look to the one who emptied himself on a cross that empties us of our human pride. And as we seek him, he's pleased to see us helping one another live as those freed people. Live as, as we fight sin together. Live as we bear burdens in love. Though all of us will be striving in this life for a season, we can look again to that day when our joy will match that of other saints, when the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. Now I'll put you in charge of many more. Now enter into my joy. To God be the glory, church. Let's pray.